Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to the Political Party Podcast. This one features Rory Palmer, former Labour MEP for the East Midlands. I first met Rory about 20 years ago, maybe even more than 20 years ago. When I first joined the Labour Party in Nottingham and I'd go to these events across the East Midlands, Rory was like a rising star even then and was was vocal and was passionate. And it's been amazing watching him then go on and have a distinguished career in politics through local government and then in the European Parliament. And on the final day of the European Parliament, Rory's the one who had the scarves made that you'll have seen so many of the British uh, members of the European Parliament wearing on those emotional scenes in that final day. Um, first of all, I should say thanks to everyone who's bought a ticket to the tour. Um, the tour continues this week on the 20th of February, Thursday the 20th of February, which, when you hear this, is tonight at the Crew Lyceum. Lyceum? Lyceum? That place. You know the one. Uh, on Friday night in Leicester on the 21st of February, uh, I'm at the Sue Townsend Theatre. On the 5th of March, I'm at the Darlington Hullabaloo. On the 6th of March, I'm at the Hexham Queen's Hall. On the 7th of March, the Bedford Quarry. On the 10th of March, the Southbank Centre in London. On the 14th of March, Maidenhead Norden Farm. Uh, on the 18th of March, I'm at Leeds Hyde Park Book Club. On the 19th of March, York at the Crescent on the 20th of March, Annick Playhouse, the 22nd of March, Southend, uh, the studio, and on the 23rd of March, Cambridge Junction. There's loads more. I mention those because a few of them are close to selling out, um, and uh, they sold very well, which is very nice. Um, but what I mean is, um, hurry up and buy a ticket if you want to go to those ones. You can get tickets for all those shows um, through my website, mapford.com slash live. You can also buy tickets to future political parties now. Um I don't know whether you follow me on social media or not, but um, the next three guests for the live show, so at the end of February, it's going to be Rebecca Long-Bailey. At the end of March, it's going to be Jeremy Hunt. And at the end of April, it's going to be Amber Rudd. Now, those shows have already sold out, but if you follow me on Twitter, at Matt Ford, and follow the other palace, the venue on, on Twitter... Sometimes on the day, people can't go or they get returns or whatever. And usually on the day, there's a couple of tickets floating around. And I know these ones sell out so far in advance, it's very frustrating. But if you follow us on the day, you might you probably stand a decent chance of being able to get in. So there you go. Very excited about those future guests and about some amazing future weekly ones. But let's crack on with today's episode uh, with Rory Palmer. This is a real treat. This is so much insight into the role of an MEP, Britain's departure from the European Union, being a Labour politician over the last few years. This is just everything you would want us to cover is covered, and maybe a little bit more as well. But we begin by talking about the emotion of that final day of the UK being in the European Union. It was an incredibly emotional day, and the footage you saw was, the, I suppose, the few minutes immediately after the vote, after the European Parliament had voted to approve the withdrawal agreement. That was the final sort of formal stage of that agreement, the formalisation of of us leaving the European Union, that emotion had been building for weeks. It had been an incredibly long goodbye and sort of set this in a bit of context. For two or three weeks, you would bump into colleagues in the European Parliament from all member states, some from our own political group, many from other political groups as well. They would shake your hand with a nod of despair. They would embrace you in hugs. This was two weeks before that vote. 
they were just, you know, utter despair, sharing our sadness, saying, you know, is there nothing else that can be done to sort of avert this, to stop this, to change the course of events? The reality is as soon as we saw the general election result in December, we knew that's what was going to happen that last week in January. The morning of the vote, though, the Socialists and Democrats group, which is our political group in the European Parliament, which Labour MEPs are part of, along with our sister parties from, from the other member states, had held an incredibly emotional farewell event with some very moving speeches. Looking back on the 40-odd years of Labour's contribution in the European Parliament, yeah. and you look at that list of Labour MEPs from years gone by, some real legends of our movement, great names, people who made immense contributions... So it was a very emotional day. We then went into the Parliament chamber for the debate. We didn't really know what tone that debate was going to be. You know, we knew Nigel Farage was going to stand up and make a contribution. We didn't know if it was going to be the predictable sort of nonsense that he normally uh, normally presents the Parliament with. It was. It could have been different. He could have chosen to take a much more sombre, dignified tone. Perhaps I was been somewhat too optimistic uh, <laughs> on that front. But then, you know, the, the, we went through about two and a half hours of debate. The vote happened very quickly, and then, yeah, there's the singing afterwards, old anxiety, and just lots of emotion. And, you know, the interesting thing is, there's all these photos of me crying. <laughs> I've, I, I've never cried in public before. Yeah. And if you speak to people, speak to my own family, and if I mind anyone else, one of the things that's often levelled at me is that I, I never show emotion. I never show emotion, so I may have overcompensated a little bit. <laughs> Uh, in the in, you know in the full you know in the full view of of Europe's media, but what happened was it was incredibly emotional. The emotion had built for weeks. It had built through that you know through the course of that day. And what happened was it had been pre-planned. The singing of Old Lang Syne. Uh, a German Green Party MEP, Terry Reinke, had sort of planned that. Yeah. We had the little we had sheets with the lyrics on. Uh, but even then, you didn't quite know if it was going to happen or not. You need yeah. quite a few good singers to stand up in the European Parliament chamber, which is a huge space. It's almost like an arena. It's yeah. huge. Uh, to make that work, people did. But then I looked across the aisle and a German MEP, Katarina Bali, was in tears, looked oh. at me, embraced me. And that's the point at which <laughs> I went. And what, they, what had happened was we normally, as a, tea, a small team of 10 Labour MEPs at the end, we normally sat sort of here and there right across the chamber. It's, there's, a, there's a set seating plan. It's alphabetical. I'm normally on row Z, sort of <laughs> way back in the, the stall somewhere. Uh, but for this occasion, the socialist group, the, the whips, the party managers there, changed the seating plan. So we were sat as a group at the front of 10. That, again, added to the occasion, added to the emotion. And then... You know, walking out of the chamber, everyone, if I'm honest, was in bits. And it wasn't, we all have our personal stories, our personal reflections on this, but I'm genuine, I'm still upset now. I'm sad about this for the country. I'm just a tiny, insignificant footnote in all of this compared to to what's happened to our country. So do you think, had you not seen that German MEP cry, you might not have been moved to tears? Was it, was it that, or were you just ready to go and that was the thing that pushed you over the edge? I honestly don't know. We'd all shed a few tears in the morning at the, the socialist group event because that was our political family. That was a, a more sort of intimate, I say intimate, there were still hundreds of people there. But that was, I suppose, the more special event given it was our own political family, our, our closest colleagues, if you like, in the parliament, the people we've worked closest with the people we are are good friends with through through our work and our time in brussels i don't know i just know that that emotion had been building over a number of weeks and just intensified and and the whole week had been strange because it was this combination of of three things that the sort of the the politics of this and 
knowing we're going to be part of this big, momentous piece of political theatre around the vote and, and our final days in the European Union, at the other end of the spectrum, just the trivial nature of this, of packing boxes and winding yes. up last bits of work and all that sort of stuff. And then in the middle of all that is just the human part of this as well and all the emotion and saying goodbye to, to friends and and colleagues, trying to help my own staff in Brussels and in the UK move on to new jobs as well. So there's just all these different dimensions, which, you know, I guess much of it is hidden from, from public view. People don't really necessarily notice what MEPs are are doing. It's interesting, these past few weeks since Brexit, I probably spent more time talking about what MEPs <laughs> from the UK did than I sort of did when we were actually there doing the job. So when, when you became an MEP, not at election time, you, you were on the, the list system, Glenys Wilmot was uh, elected ahead of you, she stands down, so then in 2017 you become an MP, MEP. I mean, was that a, a, a sort of positive change? Did you think, oh, well, that's great, I finally get to go there, or did you think, oh, actually, I'd got over not getting elected, and I'd sort of emotionally moved on from that? Yeah, it's a good question, because it was a strange time, Glenys retired, and, and Glenys Wilmot did a phenomenal job for Labour. She was the leader of Labour's MEP. She was chair of the NEC at a very difficult time for the Labour Party. Very good friend of mine. She decided to retire. And at this point, we were actually a few months after the trigger of Article 50. So I knew if I went to the European Parliament at that point, it was on a very short term contract, so to speak. But I decided I want to do it. I'd stood in the elections in 2014. I decided that, you know, I felt Labour should be a strong voice in the European Parliament. Our country should be a strong voice, have a strong leading role in the European Union. I know the referendum had, had happened, but those of us who believe in that still felt there was a there was a fight to be fought and, and a cause that we could continue to believe in. And we did. And I went to the European Parliament expecting to be there for, I think, 16, 17 months and was there longer. We 29th of March came and went, then the April Brexit date came and went, then October last year came and went. We had the European elections as the interim as well when I was re-elected in a very strange set of elections. So it's been, just in two or so years, been an incredible roller coaster for me. For my colleagues who've been there for a long, long time, it must have been, well, I know it's been incredibly testing at a, not just a political level, but an emotional level as well. At the 2019 European Parliament elections, you were elected alongside a sort of glut of Brexit Party MEPs, including Annunciata Rees-Mogg, and her deep connections to the region of the East Midlands, <laughs> of course, reflected in that. Um, what is the relationship, or what was your relationship like when you're in, you know, you're sent as a cohort from the UK, you'll obviously then have your ideological divisions, and then you're within the groups, the different groupings within the European Parliament. Is there any sort of relationship with the more Eurosceptic elements of the, of the UK, um, uh, you know, members of the European Parliament? Well, not really. Uh, because, you know, the bulk of our work as MEPs is done through the, the legislative committees. And because, you know, the Brexit Party MEPs, the Eurosceptics, just vote against everything as a matter of principle, strange principle in my view, uh, you don't really end up having conversations with them about, you know, will you back this amendment? Will you support this initiative that I'm trying to do? And you do spend a lot of time working with MEPs from outside your own political family. So, you know, if I wanted to get an amendment through on something I was working on the Environment Committee, I could only do that by reaching out to the Liberals or the Greens, for example, or the centre-right groups. 
you know, the Brexit lot just don't sort of engage in that way. You would see them around the place now and again, but, you know, I wouldn't, I haven't spent a great deal of time with them. <laughs> and what's the dynamic like in these European institutions, particularly the Parliament, where not every MEP is, is signed up to the European project? Uh, other countries send their Eurosceptics there. Mm. They all sit together in, in different groups. Um, does the tone feel quite divided or is there a sense that on the whole, most members of the European Parliament are signed up to the European project at some level. Yeah, absolutely. So it does feel that the you know, the Eurosceptics are often trying to be heard. Uh, I think that's why they are deliberately, you know, provocative, theatrical sometimes in some of some of their contributions in the Parliament because they know they know they're there, you know, as a minority in number compared to the vast majority, the vast, vast majority of MEPs, but also the wider sort of community of Brussels in the institutions, which, as you say, is is clearly uh, bought into and committed to the European project to one extent or another. There's always that commonality, whereas the, the Eurosceptics are clearly railing against that, uh, although, of course, more Eurosceptics have been elected to the Parliament over over the years, but they... You know, they they find themselves in a in a fight for for airtime, if you like. They sometimes win that fight and, and get get perhaps a disproportionate amount of airtime through through what they say and how they say it. And what's the reaction on behalf of the majority of members of that parliament and and, and the leaders within those European institutions, particularly towards the British Eurosceptics? Are the British Eurosceptics there the most vocal and the most prominent because of Farage and maybe because of the numbers? I would say so. Yes, uh, for the numbers, because Nigel Farage has a a profile. He's been there. He's been there a long time, uh, for sure. And of course, the Brexit Party after the European elections in 2019, 29 of them, they were the they were the biggest single party group in the Parliament. Uh, so they were noticeable when they they sat there, uh, you know, with the flags and, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but you know, you'll have seen it in those fi- in, the, in the final debate. In fact, several prominent MEPs would reference the fact that they would miss the vast majority of MEPs from the United Kingdom, not necessarily all MEPs from the United Kingdom. And how much how much of, uh, of the, the, the noise and the behaviour, and I don't necessarily mean that in a negative way, um, of, of the Eurosceptics, has, do you think, affected Britain's relationship within those European institutions with our European neighbours? Did people say, oh, God, what is it with you lot? Or would they say, oh, we have these problems as well, or we have these differences as well? No, I think there's a, there's a recognition that there's a there's a vein of Euroscepticism and, and there's people been elected to, to speak for that and to, to represent that. I think, you know, I think, I think about some of the, the contributions I've, I've heard, you know, Brexit Party MEPs, UKIP MEPs before that, and indeed Eurosceptic MEPs from other member states make. I think they, they sort of uh, make, it, you know, make it very easy for their, their views to be dismissed through the, the way they make their points, actually. It's very difficult to engage in any sort of meaningful debate sometimes. They're there to, to rabble rouse, to be a distraction, to, to get get attention. And if I'm honest, you know, when, when I've sat in meetings with Michel Barnier and, you know, these very serious people, uh, they don't take any notice of them, to be honest. They really don't. That can often be perceived as them not taking notice of Britain. I mean, do you think there's there's any truth to the fact that Britain is kind of was seen as a, an awkward member of the of, of the group, a, a kind of a country to be tolerated? No, actually. I might have thought that once, actually, but I don't now. Uh, having experienced these last two years or so, there is a, a huge amount of regard for the, the contribution the UK 
has made on many different levels in the EU through heads of state, uh, through the European Council and also through the Parliament and indeed the huge number of, of Brits who work in the Commission, who work across institutions at an official level, huge amount of regard uh, for the, the talent, the commitment, uh, the intelligence that, that we that we brought to those institutions, and actually, what that that huge amount of respect turned into a very real affection in those final few days and weeks. Actually, uh, and I, again, I think that added to the whole sort of emotional layers of this as well. There's it most most MEPs that I've spent time with and spoken to from other member states know a huge amount about the political system and the politics of our country. They look at the UK media, they look at our newspapers, they've followed the twists and turns of Brexit since 2016 uh, in huge detail, in, in real granular detail. Uh, and I think from that come you know, that affection, that understanding, you know, genuine understanding of our politics, actually. So, no, I don't think there's a, there's a frustration about us. I think there's a genuine sadness that we, we're not there anymore. Did you experience anything during your, your time as a member of the European Parliament or, or see any processes that made you think, I can see why people get frustrated with the European project, with the institutions. They are bureaucratic. They are slow. It is hard to make a point. Maybe there is some positive to leaving. No, I didn't say anything. There's no positives to leaving, in my view. But, but in terms of frustrations with the system, yes, but... I've also said the same about local government here. I spent 10 years in local government here, uh, 10 years as a councillor, and probably many of the things I, I moaned about then I probably moaned about in the European Parliament. And if you're a politician who's determined to, to do your bit to advance progressive positive change, then sometimes you'll fi you will find yourselves instinctively frustrated by the slowness or the cumbersomeness of a system or the bureaucracy. bureaucracy. So, yes, for sure there were times when I was frustrated, but in terms of what we are not part of now, the fact that we have lost so much influence, so much global reach, you know, my sort of little trivial concerns about the length of time it takes to, <laughs> to get an amendment tabled or, or get an answer for, to a parliamentary question, then that's just trivial nonsense compared to what, we're, what we've lost as a country. What about the dynamic within the European Union then, particularly when it comes to countries that are in the euro and that aren't? And that, that was always seen as a, perhaps a problem for the United Kingdom, that we were only going to have so much influence because we hadn't signed up to the currency and that at the heart of the European Union, there is this desire for ever closer union. Now, something David Cameron perhaps doesn't get any credit for, did negotiate um, uh, an end to ever closer union for the United Kingdom. But having sat at the heart of it for the past three or so years, do you still get the sense that that truth is still there, that, that really at its heart the European Union wants to continue to centralise in some way, ever closer union and perhaps maybe not a European super state, but, but add to the powers that Europe has over individual nations? There's certainly people there, certainly prominent figures there who, who do articulate uh, ideas and a vision along those lines. But there's also, I think, the vast majority of people that I've, I've heard speak there and listened to recognize that the the long-term health future and viability of the European Union is going to ultimately rest on the the correct balance between you know national sovereignty and the role of national parliaments and member states and the European Union 
And if you think about the big issues we are facing now, some of the issues I was working on as a member of the Environment Committee until a few weeks ago, the, the, the climate crisis, climate change, where are the big conversations going to happen on that issue? Are they going to happen in Westminster that's actually about to disappear into just the next phase of all consuming Brexit discussions? Or are they going to happen on the European level uh, or a, you know, a, a broader international level? Are they going to happen at a European level? We're not part of those conversations anymore and those who sort of drive this idea of a of a super state and the, the sort of erosion of the the power and the influence of national parliaments actually weaken in my view uh, the the sort of the the viability of the European Union so it ultimately comes down to that balance between member states national governments national parliaments in the EU uh, and, I, and I think that you know getting that balance right will be will be key to the EU's future. But did you get a feeling that there was a direction of travel, that, that, that Brexit perhaps hadn't checked the desire for an ever closer union from those who truly believe in the European project? Or are these views so disparate and, and, and different across such a, a massive political class that really they're, they're almost statistically, you know, could be disregarded? I mean, and you put that in the context of the Brexit question and what's happened here. It comes down to you know what what do we feel people had in their minds when they when they cast their votes and I don't recall a big debate going on here about you know the role of the European Union and whether the European Union was going to sort of have enhanced powers in the future and you know come on we we know the debate wasn't wasn't that maybe had we had that more nuanced debate about uh, our role in a, a reformed European Union going forward perhaps you know would the result have been different I don't know but. I know that debate in 2016 wasn't that. Uh, no, I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is uh, I, I'd voted Remain. I still think we should have stayed. But I would never want to get into a position where because I'm a Remainer that I overlook the problems that, that are at the heart of the European Union. So I guess I'm just trying to, in a way, find some positives to leaving or at least, um, I mean, maybe there aren't. Maybe maybe it's something that you haven't observed. But even for Remainers, there was a concern and it, uh, of course, it wasn't really part of the referendum campaign, but just from a democratic point of view, that if we weren't in the euro, and I think most people in Britain take the view that that's a good thing, mm. we wouldn't want to ever mm. join. Mm. Um, and obviously, that's a debate that may play out in Scotland in the next few years about whether they join. But um, that actually, there were some benefits to not being an awkward member of the family, but that maybe some Remainers had disparagingly looked at particularly conservative instincts on Europe. And in retrospect, perhaps some of those were quite good. Look, the fact that we we had the settlement that we had, we weren't in the euro, uh, and we had a you know a favourable position in terms of the budget. Yeah, uh, it just makes me even more angry the fact that you know all that's been sort of squandered away, squandered away for what? You know, we you know some some might some might see us as a sort of awkward sort of relative, the awkward sort of member of the family, but even you know thinking about those those final few weeks. And months, I think most people, most people I spoke to in the Parliament and across across the across Brussels, across the institutions, would have been prepared to tolerate whatever level of awkwardness we were going to sort of amplify inside the tent over us not being in the tent at all. To be honest, I, I think, and that again, I think that gets lost from the debate here and a lot of the coverage here. Just how how much of a regrettable and sad episode this has been for the EU as much as it has been for Remainers and pro-EU uh, people here. Perceptions about individuals um, 
can really suffer with with a bit of distance. So I just wonder what your impression was of, of some of the leading figures. I would presume Donald Tusk is quite an impressive guy. Very much so. Uh, clearly, we come from uh, you know different political places uh, in terms of our political groups and our our political backgrounds. But seeing Donald Tusk command the audience of the European Parliament, seven hundred and fifty one MEPs. You know, it's, it's a big, it's a yeah. big Parliament. And when he spoke in the Parliament, reporting back from some of those big big momentous European Council meetings through through the Brexit process. You know, he, he's a formidable politician, there's no doubt about it, and I have a huge amount of, of respect for for him. He's uh, and him not been in that role. I think it's gonna be a, you know, no disrespect to, to Charles Michael who's replaced him, but he's gonna be a big loss to the the European Union's voice on the global stage, I think. Uh, similarly uh, Michel Barnier seems like an impressive individual. Yeah, Michel Barnier is probably of of the sort of household names, if you like, of, of EU politics. Barnier is the one I've I've been able to spend most time with in terms of him, him briefing our political group, uh, both in you know some one to one conversations and meetings as well. He's clearly a very very smart, astute negotiator, but an incredibly sincere, decent person. One of the most sincere, decent people I've met. In politics, uh, if I just give an example, the week after the the general election in December, we were we were in the Strasbourg Parliament that week, and I was just having a coffee in the coffee bar between meetings, and he was sat at the next table with his his advisers, his entourage, and he sort of glanced across. He he saw I was there, and he probably guessed what me as a pro-European UK MEP was feeling that yeah. week. That general election result was the moment we knew Brexit was unavoidable; it was definitely going to happen. Uh, and he, he came over. Didn't have to. Came over. Very nice chat. Offered a few bits of advice, and was just very, very nice about it. And he's a very powerful, very busy person. He didn't have to do that. Yeah, you know, he really didn't. But that is just an example. I feel of someone who is, you know, a as I said, a very astute, very, uh, very serious politician doing a very, very serious job, but also a very, very sincere, decent. Uh, decent man as well. Uh, what about Jean-Claude Juncker? Didn't meet uh, Jean-Claude Juncker that many times, although I did. Uh, there was one particular moment at the start of a parliamentary session, parliamentary sitting, when everyone was milling about at the beginning. He was sort of down at the front and Tusk was there as well. And I just thought, you know, might not ever get another chance. So I went to get my selfie with, uh, with <laughs> Donald Tusk. I thought, well, you know, these are historic moments. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, so I get my selfie with Donald Tusk, and all of a sudden, in my between my phone and me and Donald Tusk, is this hand appears. So on my phone, I've got this close-up photo of some palm of someone's hand, and it was Jean-Claude Juncker who just <laughs> appeared, and uh, in a sort of a bit of a bit of uh, EU multi-institution banter decided to interrupt our selfie and uh, and this was captured I think it was Italian TV filmed this and, and they did a thing on it and before you know I had messages from people saying Rory do you know you're on telly having doing a selfie with Donald Tusk and John Claude Juncker what on earth's going on and so yeah it's one of those random moments where I sort of went away thinking you know this this job is quite something if nothing else in these two years yeah, moments like that. Uh, so yeah, I didn't spend a, much, a great deal of time with Jean Claude Juncker. That was probably my my one Jean Claude Juncker story. And what I'm, was, sure, I'm sure others have got better stories. Uh, and what do what, what do your colleagues make of him? My colleagues make of him. Uh, look, I think every 
every politician, every political leader has their own way of doing things. You, you hear, you know, wildly different things about Juncker. I have no idea if some of the stuff that has been written and said is true. I've absolutely, you know, no no idea, uh, to be honest. But I also know for someone to, you know, to have got to that position, to have held that position, you know, you've got to be a smart operator. You've got to know your stuff. And, and he did. And I, I think he's probably one of those people who, you know, fell victim in many ways to the sort of Euro bashing that we see in a large part, large parts of the press, to be honest. Because he's seen as... I mean, there are videos on YouTube where he appears, he's either very, very tired or he's on medication or or he might have had a drink. <laughs> and he's, you know, slapping people around the face. And, you know, his behaviour seemed quite bizarre, but maybe these are just rare moments I, put I, in a compilation. This wasn't the norm. I, I honestly don't know. I can only speak from the, the, the few moments that I've spent with him. And as I said, you know, when you know, the, the selfie moment was just a, a bit of humour. Yeah. You know, it could have been anyone doing that, I suppose. Uh, it's just jovial sort of, you know, jovial bit of humour. But I, I don't know about the other stuff. I really don't. And how accessible are the leaders of the of the European Union when you're a, a member of the European Parliament? I mean, obviously, in the in the final weeks, you're all chatting to each other because you're off. In more normal times, would a would a British MEP be able to meet the President of the Commission, the President of the Council? Uh, yes, I know. Um, you know, would you would you get a one to one audience for two hours to talk about you know some some sort of niche issue you're working on? No, you wouldn't. But you know, these people are around. The Parliament, just in the same way that you know, if you talk to Westminster MPs, they will say you know they will, they will try and you know get hold of the Prime Minister or senior ministers in the course of voting when you know whenever they're around the House. It's a bit like that, you know, when the Parliament is sitting in full session for a plenary session, you know, President of the Council, the President of the Commission, the Vice President of the Commission, they're all around, they're all milling around the place, and yeah, you can very easily you know have have conversations, raise issues. Uh, you know, have your say with them, and you know, for the most part, they are very good about that, and you know, have a have a recognition the parliament is there to do a serious job, and you know, you get all this nonsense in parts of our media that the European Parliament doesn't have any power, it's just a talking shop. Well, you know, those commissioners they can't get anything done without the say so of the parliament. Every piece of EU legislation has to be approved by the parliament. Uh, as an MEP, I, I could vote to veto EU trade agreements. A member of the House of Commons doesn't have any say on the trade agreements the UK is about to start yeah. signing round the world. So there, there had to be a, an inbuilt respect for the for the European Parliament and its members, and that led to, you know, the ability even in a short period of time to 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 spend time with those people, have your say, get your view across, and certainly with Michel Barnier, he was always keen to engage with with MEPs and particularly the UK MEPs as well as part of his work he was he was always wanting to sit down engage hear what we had to say sort of take the temperature I guess on on what we were hearing in terms of uh, you know our political colleagues in Westminster or our constituents businesses in the, the East Midlands for example who you know potentially would be huge implications for in terms of the different Brexit deal that may emerge for the you know huge parts of the East Midlands economy so he was uh, he was always keen to, to genuinely engage and listen. What's the culture of the European Parliament like? You know, the, the cliches about Westminster are that, well, first it's falling down, but that, you know, if you were to be, if you were to be unsympathetic, you'd say everyone's hammered, 
Um, you know, the bars are cheap and the MPs are getting drunk and there's this sort of culture down there that, to some extent, maybe even fosters a bullying aspect. Um, but it's, it's sort of seen as very boozy and, and in, a, you know, uh, in need of reform. What are, the, what are the clichés of the European Parliament and its culture? Well, certainly the European Parliament in Brussels sometimes had a feeling of falling down as well. Uh, a chunk of my office wall fell off once. Uh, there's been no hot running water in the office building I was in for the entire period of time. What? I was there. There was no hot water. There was some big Legionnaires uh, issue. What? Or something in the water system. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was extraordinary. So, you know, that that's the gravy train for you. There's no hot running... <laughs> No hot running water in the in the and there still isn't there still isn't I have no idea when they're gonna anyone's ever gonna get around to fixing this but I, I felt I, I found that a little bit not quite right no. to be uh, these are the basics to, to be, well exactly exactly and uh, there's you know journalists and blogs have, have written about the lack of hot running water in the European Parliament but anyway you know the culture of the place you know I've spent time in Westminster just like you know you have. As well, and it's different to that. It honestly is. It's very different. I remember my, I think it's my first day. I went when I went to Brussels, and my office was up on the 13th floor. I was up, you know, in the office about 8 p.m. You know, I was working away, sorting things out, and I came down to the ground floor where the, where you know, there is there is a bar and there's a canteen and there's a there's a sandwich shop and all that sort of stuff. And I came out of this lift, and the place is deserted. I'm literally the only person in the building. I, I was, Literally, where is everyone? Someone's not told me where, where to the go. Party is. <laughs> but there isn't that cult. There isn't that culture in, mm. in the Brussels Parliament that people will be in the Parliament until whatever time you drink. The, the, the bar in the Parliament sort of closes at seven or eight. Of course, there's bars outside the Parliament where people will will socialise. But you know this this idea that it's all champagne receptions and the rest of it that certainly wasn't wasn't my experience in fact i'm not sure i ever went to a single champagne reception maybe i just did it all wrong yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe i just got it all wrong maybe i just wasn't invited i don't know but but yeah i think yeah it it can be that i'm sure but if you're there to do do the job seriously it's it's not that uh and i think like most political institutions whether it's westminster or the european parliament it's very easy to, to sort of, you know, characterise or caricature a certain culture. Uh, I mean, it sounds like it's more professional than, than Westminster. Yeah. I don't know if it's more professional. I just take the view that, you know, I spent most of my time with colleagues who were there to do a serious a serious job of work, and that's what I spent my time doing. Of course, you know, you'd have a, a drink here and there with colleagues at the end of a a long day as you would in in most sort of lines of work could you have spent a lot of time going to to long boozy lunches if you'd have wanted to probably probably but you can do that in Westminster as well yeah uh, so I'm not sure there's a there's a huge there's a huge difference but if you want to if you want to be noticed in the European Parliament and if you want to get things done you need to be noticed it's a lot of hard toil behind the scenes. It's a lot of time spent in your committees in voting sessions, which would go on for three, four, five hours sometimes, literally voting on directives of a hundred, hundreds of pages, line by line, sentence by sentence. And if you've got amendments down, you want to be there to make sure they get voted on. You know, the House of Commons sits every day that the Parliament is in session. The European Parliament in full session doesn't do that. Our work is through the committees and they are long... Uh, long detailed meetings you know and if you're doing that right if you're on two committees or three even 
and you are involved in other sort of campaigns and gr informal groups working on particular issues and pieces of work, you know, there's not there's not many hours left for the, the boozy lunches. I don't know if these boozy lunches exist or not. <laughs> I, I, I certainly get invited to them. <laughs> so what about the role of an MEP back home then? Because for a, a Westminster MP, they cover roughly 70,000 voters. Uh, even the most rural constituency pales into significance compared to a European region. How on earth do you prioritise where to go when you're covering the entire East Midlands? Yeah, it's, uh, it's an absurd system. And, you know, many people talk about why turnout is low in European elections, why people don't know who their MEPs are, and that's because we have this absurd regional system people don't live in regions no one's ever said to me you know i live in the east midlands you know you live in nottingham or you live in leicester or you live in derbyshire you don't you don't live the east midlands it's a it's a false construct for for most people uh, so how do you prioritize well you pro i prioritized around issues and of course the predominant issue of my time as an mep has been brexit so it's been spent mm -hmm. time meeting businesses of all shapes and sizes in all different sectors and the economy of the region uh, is so dependent, is so dependent on a, on that frictionless trade, on that close relationship with Europe. So I spent my time learning as much as I could, as quickly as I could, about what that meant in reality for, for those businesses. Huge multinationals, very small businesses in very specialist sectors, but nonetheless exporting to the, to, to the, to the EU27. So it's a huge geographic space, Skegness, right over to the edge of Manchester, North Nottinghamshire, Skeggy. All, all the way down to, to Silverstone and the, the, the southernmost tip of Northamptonshire. I, yeah, I did my best to get round all sort of corners of the region. I did, you know, if there was two or three Labour MEPs, you'd organise it differently. You'd probably focus in on a geographic area. You'd probably yeah. say, you know, you, you, you know, you work on Nottinghamshire issues, you do Leicestershire. But I was one Labour voice. I like to think I... You know, I did a reasonable job of, of getting around the region, but you'd always get people saying, you know, I don't know, you could be in, you know, you could be in Bolsover or Matlock or wherever, and people would say, oh, never heard of my MEP, you're never in the newspaper. Well, you know, it was like literally hundreds of weekly <laughs> local newspapers. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've probably, I've, my staffing budget is pretty similar to that of a Westminster yeah. MP. And as you've said, a Westminster MP representing, you know, 70,000 people, also, in a much more sensible geographic area, can have a team of three or four people in the, you know, across their staff. That's pretty much what I had to represent, you know, a huge chunk of the country. Yeah. And to be across many different issues, and you get casework and constituents' inquiries, just in the same way an MP would not have the same volume, but you'd certainly get very complex cases that would require a lot of detailed work it would in, you know involve raising issues with european institutions and as we've said those are those institutions are are huge bureaucracies in places just finding the right person to write to can be a can be a lot of work so you become an mep effectively mid term do you and i don't know whether you did take this decision say right well i'm going to keep glennis wilmot's staff or do you go, right, I need to put my own stamp on this, I'm going to, made, I'm going to move to a separate office? What did you do? Uh, I kept Glenys's office. Uh, yeah. It's a building you know well, the East Midlands Labour Party building. Just Harold on the Wilson of, House. Harold Wilson House. 23 I Barrett Lane. I, I, have the, I have the ground floor of Harold Wilson House in Attenborough, just outside Nottingham. And that's, that's an office of much history, because Glenys had it, previous MEPs uh, had the office yeah. as well. 
Uh, so there's a great collection of Labour Party books which you would you would love rifling through. I think oh, I've rifled through. You know, going when back I back decades. <laughs> I used to work in the office upstairs for the, for the East Midlands Labour Party, and um, I've, I've, I think I've taken a few bits of memorabilia over the years. <laughs> the odd mug, the odd poster, but there is. It's got it's got a remarkable. It's, it's, it's a real treasure trove of oh, uh, man. Of, of history. Uh, in there, has it still got the video conferencing unit upstairs, which was like a big telly with a camera on top? I don't know if I've That's... talked about this on previous episodes, but there was like a boardroom upstairs that the regional board would use, mm-hmm. and um, it had this huge telly with like a camera on top. I remember when I first started working for the party, I was like, What's that? They said, Oh. Noel Edmonds gave it us. <laughs> and at the 2005 election, Noel Edmonds, who is well known as a Tory, bought a lot of video conferencing gear and wanted to sell it to the Tory party cheap as a favour. And they were like, we don't need it. He's like, right, well, I'm going to give it to the Labour Party then. They were like, go on then. So I, there was just this thing in the corner of the room. I, I vaguely we remember. I can it. vaguely remember this. I, is it still there? I don't know. I don't know. It might, it might, it might be in the corner of my office that I've just not sort of noticed. I don't know. But, but yeah... Uh, yeah, I, I I took that office on from Glenys. I, I kept, uh, you know, I've had great staff uh, these past two and a half years who've, who've you know gone through this sort of roller coaster of uncertainty, as well. Yeah, so some Glenys staff came to came to work with me, but over time, new staff have, have joined the team as well. And uh, I know it's a cliche. Every politician says this. You know, you can't you can't do the job without a good team of staff. But Not every it, politician says it. Well. Uh, <laughs> Well, I, I the good say ones it. do. I, I certainly say it, and I say it because it's the absolute truth. You, you, you know, you can't do yeah. an effective job without a good team of staff doing, you know, important work. You know, unsung heroes. They're, you know, they're the ones who are answering the phone to constituents, drafting the letters, figuring out who on earth it is we need to find in the European Commission to to raise this this you know this really serious issue for for this individual and. And it's a bit of the MEP's role that, that I don't think people necessarily appreciated. You know, I think people just thought we were off voting in, in Brussels and doing stuff there. But you know, there is the, there is the local and regional, uh, part of the role as well. And you know, I've had some you know very nice emails and letters these past few weeks from people that, you know, we have helped on on some some issues which have really really mattered to them. And how hard is it? Because at election time, so if you lose, it's the same for MPs. The MP just loses the job like that, and obviously we leave the European Union. The MEPs lose their job. So do your staff. Mm. I mean, that must. I mean, it should be a nightmare for them. Yeah, absolutely. It's not been easy. I mean, I will say, and, I, I get, and just going back to, to what we were talking about around the emotion and the the tears in the Parliament and all that sort of stuff. You know, we knew that day was going to come. Yeah. You know. Uh, even you know, although the, the there were moments, certainly last autumn, I felt it was a genuine moment or an opportunity that was giving some hope to a change of course just a tiny number of MPs in Westminster needed to change their mind on the idea of a confirmatory vote and we could have secured that but as we know as soon as we were heading down the road of a general election and it wasn't just when the exit poll came out on the night of the 12th anyone who'd been out campaigning for for Labour in the weeks of that campaign knew it was going to be catastrophic and knew with that came the final nails in in the coffin of uh, of the Remain or the confirmatory vote cause. So we knew this day and those weeks were going to come. So it hasn't really made it any easier and certainly for our staff, they've had to, to look for jobs. It's, you know, had we, had we left at the end of a mandate of the European Parliament knowing there was a, 
a new trench of MEPs coming in. There's opportunities for our yeah. staff in and around that. We haven't been replaced like for like, if you like. The parliament has actually shrunk a little bit, so we they haven't, you know, they haven't filled all 73 seats that we've vacated. Uh, so, yeah, it's been a tough time for our staff because they've known we were approaching the end, but all the way through that, they've worked incredibly diligently and professionally and have you know, just, just done a great job and you know, take this opportunity to say thank you to all those staff who work for Labour MEPs uh, over this time. And of your staff, the staff that works for you in, in, in your office in Nottingham, for those that wanted to seek further employment, have they been able to get jobs elsewhere? Uh, yeah. Thank uh, God for that. Yeah, some have, some haven't. Some are still looking. Okay. Uh, and I'm doing what I can to, to help. Yeah. Uh, so anyone listening who's looking for very good, hardworking, diligent, uh, multilingual uh, people in Brussels, I can I can make some very good recommendations. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, it, it, it's just the role of the MEP for so many people is, is just unknown. People kind of get what a member of parliament does, particularly a constituency, although actually, to be fair, I'm already... I think most people don't even know what an MP does, actually. So an MEP, I always thought when I was, you know, a Labour activist and started volunteering, whatever, I always thought the cushiest job's the MEP one because there's not much accountability from the public. It gets kind of diluted across the region. Is that fair? No. <laughs> well, of course not, I suppose. I, I realise that now, but... No, it's... I've, I've you know, I just, I've described the job as, as misunderstood in many ways, and I think that misunderstanding comes from just the, the level of, of, of un, you know, of understanding of what we do. And as I said, the, such a... The bulk of our work is done away from the glare of the media or the public at home. It is done in... The Environment Committee of the European Parliament that is meeting on a, a Tuesday and a Thursday morning in Brussels, you know, people here are not watching that. I get that, but that doesn't mean we're not doing important work and, and voting on and and passing legislation that is going to have a huge impact on people's lives. In terms of the accountability, as I said, I I I I do I do find the regional system frustrating. I think some of that. You know, that doesn't help, you know, a notion of, of accountability, for sure, and the, the electoral system that is used, because I'm fully aware people are voting for a Labour MEP. They're not voting for Rory Palmer to be, you know, to be the MEP in the East Midlands. So you almost, you know, you almost, you know, there's almost a remoteness built into the system, which I found frustrating. That said, you know, if I look at my, my inbox when I was an MEP, there was no shortage of people 
try and hold me to account, <laughs> and uh, as they should, as yeah. they should, uh, for sure. Uh, so you know, the system doesn't doesn't help that that relationship between MEP and the people they're representing. Elected politicians also have the added pressure of not only going into politics and wanting to see the the values and the principles you believe in enacted to improve people's lives, you represent a geographical area, you've also got to deal with staffing issues. All of a sudden, you're basically running a small business Mm. where you've got to deal with HR, wages, pay slips, any any tension that might exist in the office. I mean, how do you go from, you know, being basically an activist to then effectively being a boss? Well, I'd, I'd been in a political role before. So I managed a team of staff in my, my previous role at Leicester City Council. So I didn't, you know, I didn't find that a particularly dramatic, dramatic change. But yeah, there's all these elements to the role. As you say, you are in effect running a, a small business. You're managing office budget, you're managing a team of staff, you're, you know, you're doing your own job as the, the elected uh, representative. You have a lot of balls up in the air at the, the same time. Beg and your pardon. It, <laughs> it comes with it comes with the territory. And but look, I I haven't been an MEP is has been at a personal level for me fascinating, a huge honour. It's been brilliant. I miss it enormously. And I don't just miss it. I don't miss it for me. I miss it for the fact that we, as a country, and haven't got that that seat at the table, that voice in those institutions, that that influence at European level uh, anymore. Uh, I've learned a huge amount from it. Made some great friends right across Europe. And I, and as you say, there's there's huge amounts of these roles, whether it's in the European Parliament or in Westminster, or indeed, you know, if I think back to my my days in local government, councillors. No one ever talks about the role of councillors, but these these roles are, you know, I think what the public see is probably five percent of what we do. Well, you're a councillor. You're also deputy mayor to the elected mayor of Leicester, um, where Peter Salisbury. Mm-hmm who I campaigned for in the disastrous Leicester South by-election of, I think, 2004, um, when we lost, when I say we, when Labour lost to um, the Lib Dems, Palmjit Singhill. That's when I chased <laughs> Charles Kennedy around to the constituency dressed as a chicken. Um, Still spoken about now in the streets <laughs> of Leicester. <laughs> um, so being a deputy mayor, I mean, people. some people will know the difference between an elected mayor and a traditional council leader where... Mm. I think they're a good idea. They improve accountability. Everyone in the city gets to vote for the individual that runs uh, the place. I think in cities where you do have a mayor, there is more recognition of the individual than... And and, and I don't mean that in an ego way. People know who runs the city, and that's important. Um, The role of a deputy mayor... In London, which is the one that everyone compares it to, even though some London boroughs have have mayors, like Lewisham... um, there are numerous deputy mayors. There's a deputy mayor for housing and all this sort of thing. In Leicester, what was the model like? Yeah, so so Leicester moved to a directly elected mayor system in 2011. Uh, and Peter, Peter Salisbury, was elected as the first mayor, appointed me as his deputy. I was a deputy for six years. So Peter decided at that time just to have one deputy mayor and then a, a smaller team of assistant mayors who, who were the cabinet. Essentially, since I left, uh, Peter actually decided to replace me with three people. Which was, you know, you know, need free people to replace me. That's uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, a compliment. But yeah, again, you know, a role that is quite difficult to define. I guess, you know, 
I spent a lot of time doing the meetings the mayor didn't want to do. <laughs> uh, but no, in, in serious, I had, I had a fascinating portfolio. I was I was doing all kinds of, of things, climate change, transport, health, uh, working with the mayor very closely on, on the budget, the financial strategy, on, on the big sort of economic regeneration programs, getting investment into the, the city. So a fascinating role. And moving to the mayoral system has definitely been good for politics and democracy in Leicester, in my view, for sure. And, the, and as a deputy mayor of a city like Leicester, how much change could you personally affect? Did you feel that actually this is better than being an MP? I can have far more effect on people's lives. Yeah, you could. You can make decisions on a day-to-day basis that were, were going to change how frontline services were going to operate, how they were going to be delivered you you know a stroke of the not literally the stroke of a, a pen because there was a few weeks work went into it you know I, I decided that Leicester City Council should pay the proper living wage for its for its staff uh, I did that you know 20, soon after the elections in 2011 and you know as a deputy mayor I decided that was a good thing that was something worth doing Peter clearly supported that and we just got on and we did it and it's a matter of weeks and that you know, literally changed how much our lowest paid staff were going to earn and take home in their 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 monthly pay packets and make a you know hopefully made a positive positive difference so yeah on any given day you could make a real direct tangible difference to people but i would also argue in a slightly different way you could do that as an mep yeah as well just in a it's in a different sort of way you know i would vote for a directive that would be concerned with the the safety of of meat, for example, you know, processed meat in burgers or sausages or whatever, you know, if that directive had not gone through and that means the meat we're eating might be less safe for whatever reason, the fact that it has gone through and I've contributed to that in a small way makes a real tangible difference to people. It's it's different, but it's still there as an immediate impact on people's lives. So you've been a, a councillor, a deputy mayor, a member of the European Parliament, Westminster's not the place that you've got to yet. Is that the next? Is that the next ambition? I don't know, to be honest. Uh, I uh, I've just left this role, which I am honestly going to miss, which has just been you know, the most brilliant job to to have done and to to represent the Labour Party and the East Midlands, the region where where I live, uh, where I was born and brought up, where where we learn our politics <laughs> in, in many ways. Uh, I don't know what's next for me, to be honest. There's a, there's a, there's a big, as you know, a very big, very important process going on at the moment, which will shape the Labour Party's fortunes in the future. And you know, I intend to contribute to that a little bit in the next few weeks. And beyond that, I don't, I don't really don't know. And what will your contribution be? Uh, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do some campaigning for Keir, for Keir Starmer. That's who I nominated. Because one of the, you know, one of the, the final things we were able to do as a team of Labour MEPs, we we all had a nomination in the, uh, the leadership process. So all, you know, had all the candidates on the phone and you know, trying to persuade me to nominate them. And I thought long and hard about it. I spoke to a number of the candidates, but you know, I felt, I felt, I feel Keir Starmer is is the the candidate who can best take us forward at, at this point. Uh, in time, so I'm doing a bit of campaigning, encouraging people to, to vote for Keir. Uh, but I also tend to have my say on one or two of the, the issues that have uh, have, uh, have dogged the Labour Party a little bit these past few years. And um, <laughs> just just on the leadership thing, have you decided who you're going to vote for for deputy yet? I nominated Rosanna. Uh, I think it's got a huge amount to offer. She's a really exciting candidate. 
uh, and you you had her on the live she was, show. She was out of ago. this world. Yeah, uh, I didn't know her before this process. I obviously knew who she was and knew she was a member of Parliament, but I had a I think about twenty five minute phone conversation with her when I was deciding who I was going to nominate. And yeah, she's got some great ideas, great energy. I think she'd be a fantastic deputy leader. I will also say that one of your other recent guests, Ian Murray, oh, man. Uh, what a guy. has a huge amount to offer as well. And you know, whatever happens, you know, I hope that uh, that Rosanna uh, and Ian Murray uh, have big roles to play in the sort of next phase of Labour's Labour's uh, Labour's future. One thing we haven't discussed: we've discussed every aspect, it seems, of the role of the member of the European Parliament. But being a Labour member of the European Parliament during this period. <laughs> Firstly, what was the Labour European Parliament group's relationship like with the Labour leadership in your time? <laughs> well, so so our, our group leader, Richard Colbert, who is the, the leader of the European Parliamentary Labour Party, on our behalf, so spend a lot of time, uh, would, would attend shadow, shadow cabinet meetings and, and NEC meetings. But I think it's fair to say my own experience at the the leadership of the Labour Party, uh, how to put this politely. Oh, you don't have to be polite. I might might not be polite. (laughs) I'm not necessarily sure they were that bothered what I, as a a member of the European Parliament, was was doing, to be honest. Uh, There were meetings with the leadership, there were meetings with uh, people around the, the leader at particular points, but, you know, the, the lead, the leader himself, I'm not sure was, particularly engaged in what we what we were doing Keir, um, Keir Starmer was Keir okay. was obviously out in Brussels a lot through in terms of the shadow Brexit secretary and he spent a lot of time meeting with with Labour MEPs and uh, uh, you know very very genuine very sincere and and was 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 really really good in engaging us in what he was doing in crafting Labour's Brexit <laughs> policy and and as we know that has been quite a delicate uh, piece mm. of work at uh, at times over the past few years, Tom Watson, when Tom was deputy leader, uh, he was in touch often and was, was very interested in the work we were doing and, and uh, very engaged and very supportive, a personal, but very supportive of, of me. Uh, John Ashworth, Shadow Health Secretary, came out to Brussels, uh, did a big speech and, and met with a lot of the health stakeholders who I was working with. Uh, so yeah, different levels of engagement, but I've got to be honest. You know, the, at the very top, I didn't feel a great, a great sense of interest in what we were doing. And in that final week, on that final day, or since, have you had a phone call or a letter from the leader of the Labour Party thanking you for serving the party and the country in Europe? We we got a letter. It was uh, it was uh, sort of after the event, if you like. Which you know, I'm not. You know, yeah, we got a letter. Uh, it was nice. <laughs> there was no, there was no phone call. But look, you know, other other members of the shadow cabinet on that day uh, sent text messages, very nice, heartfelt, genuine, yeah. sincere messages to to Labour Labour MEPs. You know, I got a very nice text that morning from Kia, for example. Uh, and what a particular moment that day! That was the day, the day of the vote, when. I think it was a spokesperson, one of Jeremy Corbyn's spokespeople had said, when asked what Jeremy would be feeling on the Friday, on Brexit day, the point which we leave, you know, he'll be shedding no tears. At that very moment, there were literally Labour Party politicians and staff 
and our team in Brussels literally shedding tears about what was happening. And I just, you know, that wasn't a deliberate slight at us. Of course it wasn't. But, you know, I think going all the way back to 2016 and the referendum, I still believe, and there's no point dwelling or crying over spilt milk, is there? I still believe if the Labour Party from the top had put more vigour, more energy, more passion into our part of the Remain campaign, the course of history could have been very different. Is it fair to say that the the, the group of Labour MEPs, in a way, was insulated from Corbynism, partly because of the electoral cycle, about when they're elected, partly the distance, partly the European issue? I mean, did you get the impression from colleagues who've been around longer, like Richard Corbett, that that, that perhaps that, that group of people had not had the same numbers of say, pro-Corbyn members of it? Um, well, no, I mean, the, the EPLP that I joined in 2017, there were there were certainly some MEPs there who'd been very vocal supporters of, of Jeremy Corbyn and I think had nominated him in the the in 2015 and, in, and again in, in 16 as well. So there was always a range of views in the EPLP. In fact, right to the the end you know you, you if you ask some of my EPLP colleagues at the end they they may well give you a very different take on <laughs> the events of uh, of pre of, of recent recent years I can only give you give you my view and you know there's the what I will say at points in Brussels across the socialist family there was certainly after the 2017 general election and the months following that I got to the parliament the October after the, the 2017 election there was a huge amount of excitement around Corbynism amongst some of our socialist colleagues. And it was a little bit like the conversations you'd have here. You know, sometimes you go to a CLP meeting here a few months after the 2017 election, you'd have to remind people that we didn't win the election because it was being talked about and was developing this folklore almost Mm. that we'd won the 2017. And it was a bit like that in Brussels amongst some of our socialist friends and colleagues, and I remember Jeremy coming out to Brussels that autumn, and he, of course, met with the EPLP, but he also addressed some events put on by the Party of European Socialists. And, you know, it was, it, there were the same sort of rally. It was a, a rally-type event, almost like an election rally. And I remember sort of looking at this event and thinking, you know, look, Labour's just lost a general election. At that point, what, the third successive yeah. defeat against an incredibly unpopular prime minister, against a, an incompetent, terrible Tory campaign. And I just wanted to sort of say to, to my European friends and colleagues at that point, and I've successively said to them since, this is not the blueprint, red print, whatever. <laughs> this is not the blueprint you want to be following necessarily. So for Labour then and the future of the party, Keir Starmer in, in your assessment is the, the best hope Labour has to to perhaps get close to winning ways again. It feels like in this leadership contest, I think Rebecca Longbell is in a different place because she uh, still kind of believes in the Corbyn project, but certainly for people who don't, Lisa Nandy and and Keir Starmer, they can't really tell the party the truth about what's happened in the last few years. Do you think if Keir Starmer becomes leader, that will change a bit and you'll be able to say to them, look, a lot of that was just ludicrous? I hope so. Um... And like you, yeah, there's been times in this this process when I've just sort of wanted people to let themselves off the leash a little bit. That's what it's felt yeah. like. And, of course, you know, people are trying to win an election. I can understand why there has to be a degree of triangulation. We've all done that 
in selections and elections yeah. at whatever at whatever level i guess after the the process and when we've got a, a result and a newly elected leader of course the proof will be in the pudding it will be who do we see been appointed or unappointed <laughs> dis, you know, <laughs> fired or whatever from the shadow cabinet yeah. you know what's the composition of the shadow cabinet what you know what proposals will come forward around uh, renewing, reshaping the party machinery, for example, because one of the things that I found most distasteful about these these past few years, and I don't just say it because you used to be one, but it's the way we've seen Labour Party staff publicly criticised and hung mm. out to dry. That just didn't used to happen. Yeah, and you can't, and, you can't defend yourself. And it as a didn't happen because it's just fundamentally wrong. It's not what the Labour Party should be yeah. about. It's not what any decent organisation employing people. And these aren't just jobs. Yeah. You know, this is, you know, I, I see how hard party staff work. They work just as hard, if not harder, than the elected politicians yeah. doing by elections and. You know, constitutional stuff oh, and uh, you know raising money yeah. and, and just just a huge plethora of stuff that the vast majority of Labour Party members just won't know about or have any appreciation yeah. of, and to see the party staff the way they've been hammered at times, it's just it's just been distasteful and wrong, and I just you know I, I just want the party to move on from that. It was probably more a Westminster-focused debate, but particularly with the independent group, which was apparently formed this week a year ago. How quickly things wow. have changed. Was there, And I suppose there wasn't the same emphasis on MEPs leaving the party, or, or, or there didn't seem to be that discussion going on. But has there been a point at any point in the last few years, whether it was anti-Semitism or other things, where you thought, actually, I might leave the Labour Party? So I've had conversations with my, my wife... I think many of us who, you know, have come from a particular place in the Labour Party, who've known the Labour Party in different times, you know, the, the, the sort of, I suppose, our era, our yeah. generation. If the you rock like, and roll where, years. <laughs> <laughs> well, just when we, just when it was so very different and we used to win elections and yeah. we weren't mired in, in horrific uh, episodes of anti-Semitism, there's been times when I think many of us have found ourselves just utterly, utterly despairing of it. And I know the despair I feel about that is nothing compared to what uh, you know, Luciana and Margaret Hodge and Ruth Smith and uh, people have, have felt. And I have, I have nothing but admiration, real, genuine admiration. I don't know those people particularly well personally. I've, you know, I've followed this you know, from inside the party like many mm. of us have done. But I, I've just... I've just moments of real despair, but honestly, moments of just sheer, sheer anger at what has happened. Real anger. The fact that you know I've been you know, been to constituency meetings and party events where you would raise concerns about what was happening. You'd just be shouted down. You'd be accused of making stuff up, and it was all you know. It's all just some sort of proxy, uh, you know, some sort of proxy for for undermining the leader and. The rest of it, it's it's been it's been bleak and hard work. But I took the decision with others that actually we had a responsibility to stay stay in the party and to try to get the party back to a place where we were not just competitive in elections, but where we were just a decent place, where we were not talking about anti-Semitism. Now, 
realistically, we know there's some way to go. And hopefully this leadership process, one way or another, is, a, is going to be a critical, critical turning point in that. I can't believe I almost forgot to ask you about this. So there were two things I really wanted to ask you about, and I've only just remembered them right at the end. Firstly, you left a note in your office for presumably your successor. Now, politicians leaving notes, because of Liam Byrne, is like a, is a kind of, not treacherous, but I suppose it is, it's a kind of risky thing. So what did the note say? Yeah, so I left a note. On the very final day, the Friday, Brexit day, just before I caught the Euros, started to come home, I, I just quickly jotted out, it's not something I pre-planned particularly, I was just sat in my office last half an hour, you know, it was a pretty bleak place, all the pictures off the wall, and, you know, it was just, you know, just in a, some boring office. Uh, so I just thought, I'll just write a note, I've got no idea who's going to move into this office, so I just, you know, it was just, I can't remember what it said, to be honest, I think it just said, you know, very sad day, uh, whoever you are, wherever you're from, you know, I wish you wish you well oh, in this mate. job, and uh, I put it in the office drawer. And I just assumed, I just assumed that you know, cleaners would come in, and everything that we'd left in the office would just be just be cleared away, yeah. incinerated. I just, I just didn't expect you know it to, to to last. But I found out yesterday that it's a French a French MEP, French socialist MEP, has moved into that office and apparently has found the note and is very touched by it. I've not not heard from her directly yet. She's Apparently going to get try and get in touch, but I heard from a, you know, a colleague, colleague via a colleague via a colleague that the note had been found. Amazing! So there we go. Well, we've got to try and get <laughs> hold of her and get her on the show. Um, that would be wonderful. And, and secondly, the scarves you had made. So there's a great image of the pro-European British delegation holding these scarves up on the final day. How do you, where did you have the idea and, and talk us through the entire process of designing it and getting them made? Okay, the story of the scarves. I've talked about nothing else these past few years. I'm sorry. No, 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 I'm talking about, you know, no one's asked me about, you know, what do I think about Canada Plus and trade and, and whatever else. I've just been talking about scarves. It's been. But anyway, yeah, the story of the scarves. So just before Christmas, when we knew Brexit was going to happen for sure, I thought, well, I just want to get a gift for friends and colleagues. In the European Parliament. Lovely idea. Wanted to get something which would reflect the East Midlands region, my constituency. And the problem with that is there's nothing that's genuinely unifying. You know, if I went for something along the lines of Robin Hood, then you annoy Derby. Yes, if you yeah. get Melton Mowbray pork pies, you annoy Nottinghamshire. You know, just, just, and vegetarians. And vegetarians. <laughs> so, uh, Stilton cheese. I didn't fancy taking a load of Stilton cheese in my suitcase <laughs> on the Eurostar. So I thought... Football. Everyone talks about football and people like football. And actually, you know, you and I support the same football team. We've been, you know, we didn't know each other at the time. But I remember going to, I think it must have been 95, the European, the UEFA Cup run. Oh, not in my the forest God. against oh. Auxerre, yeah. in France. And I was going to that match with my dad. And on our way into the ground, we bumped into a big group of Auxerre fans. And between their their French, our English, and some sort of broken communication in between, they wanted to swap scarves. That's so cool. So I said to my dad, look, swap your scarf, because I want to keep mine, yeah. <laughs> mine my own. So so I've got this Oaks Air scarf, I've still got it. That's so cool. Uh, so again, I thought, you know, football, it's this great unifying thing. So very quickly, I thought, football scarf, yeah, that, that's what we wanted. So great idea. So sketched the design out with my daughter's felt tips about three <laughs> days before Christmas. No way. Got uh, got a guy who worked in my my Eastman's office at the time onto this and said, "Look, I want some football scarves making. I want proper woolen knitted scarves. I don't want some cheap printed thing. I want the proper, yeah. real deal." So then, just after Christmas, they arrived. 
Uh, and on one side, they say united in diversity, which is the official motto of the European Union. We're 1973 to 2020. On the other side, they say always united. And they're a, they're a half and half scarf. And I know this is contentious territory for, <laughs> for football fans, but it was the only design that would really work for this it, particular it message this occasion. Exactly. So I took them out to Brussels, started giving them out to my friends and colleagues. And they were honestly, they were just done as a personal gift. I, they weren't done as, I know this is a strange thing to say, as a as a former politician, they were not done as a big sort of PR thing. I just expected people to pin them on the office wall or, or whatever. Yeah. People started wearing them. So I gave them to some of, my, some of my German colleagues and friends and they were wearing them around the parliament. And then before you knew it, people were knocking at my office door wanting them. The media were interested. Adam Fleming from the BBC yeah, did a piece yeah. on them. Sky News did did a piece on them. The, the official museum of the EU, the House of European History, which is next door to the Parliament, wanted one. So I sort of presented one to them as well. So it just it was it just took off. And as you say, the pictures of the certainly the pictures from the socialist group event where people were sort of waving them sort of football sort of terrace style. Yeah. And then also in the Parliament chamber after the vote as well. And I just genuinely didn't expect that. And I started to get emails and tweets, people wanting them and asking, you know, where could they get one? They're limited edition. There's not going to be some big mass mass run of them because I think there's something quite special about the fact that they were made for, for a very sad but historic occasion. And those who've got one know that they've got one of a one of a batch, one of a kind. Yeah. And, uh, you very kindly gave me one, which... I did, I did. And, like uh, a Star Wars <laughs> fan, I'm going to leave it in its wrapper. Like, you know, there's people who like leave the... Because like I've got so much football memorabilia, I know you have as well, badges and autograph books and things. And it just, it it sits as a... Uh, as a, a, a I'm very, very grateful that you sent so, me one. So I, I've got the one that I the, the one that I had with me in the, the European Parliament at the, the moment of the vote and those very emotional moments after that have been all over the media. I've, I've kept that one somewhere yeah. special that's a sort of special one that yeah. I knew I that's had. match worn that yeah that's match worn that's the one yeah that's you know I don't know maybe it's like Gaza's Italian 90 yeah. shirt isn't it you cried in it I don't know yeah. can you can you get can you get scarves framed I don't know yeah of course you can yeah <laughs> of course you can get anything framed maybe I'll get it framed I don't know maybe it'll just go in the maybe it'll just go in the loft so how many did you have made 300 Oh, that's quite a lot. Yeah, but I suppose in the global context, yeah. that's a limited run. Yeah, once you've, you know, once I've dished them out to, to friends and colleagues. It's and... cost you a fortune. No, not really. Not really. Uh, but I was just pleased I did it because... It's such a they, cool thing to they, have done. They became such a big part of this, you know, the visual. It's the image yeah, the of, vis- of the, the day we left. Yeah, and there was, you know, I, I, I thought other people might have done stuff. I thought people might have had badges made or, or something, but there was nothing else. And... You know, Richard Corbett, as I said, the leader of the, the Labour MEPs, I gave, I gave him his scarf at the start of that week and he just wore it for every meeting, every media interview he did uh, through that week. Such and a cool thing. They just became, a, yeah, they just inadvertently, accidentally became a big a big part of the, the images of the moment. I mean, really, you've become a fashion icon. You've become a fashion designer. I think that's stretching it a little By bit. By default, but you've, <laughs> you've created a garment that everyone wants. It's a limited run. There's huge public demand for it. Yeah. You could do kind of political clothing. <laughs> so, like, well, I, I think, don't know, I think, whatever happens next, you could do there's a, a... There's a niche market here, Matt, I think, and I think you'll probably eat I probably <laughs> yeah, am, yeah, for, for, for political T-shirts and scarves and socks and stuff. But... Uh, but yeah, they they captured a moment, and I didn't expect. I really didn't expect them to do that. I was a little bit nervous actually because I, you know, they were they were just done as a a little gift for people, and I was a little bit nervous when they started appearing on, 
all over the media about because it just looked as if I was trying to almost exploit the moment and yeah. I genuinely wasn't doing that I genuinely didn't do this for you know I didn't you know, there wasn't a press release that went out saying you know I've had these scarves made or whatever they were just done as a as a gift available on the website 1099 <laughs> could have made a fortune out of these mate well um, I've, I've auctioned a few off I mean the press of auctioning the last few off in support of the Joe Cox Foundation great because idea. people as a people right across Europe right across the country were getting in touch wanting one and you know, I had a few spare, and I just thought, well, what's the fairest way of doing this? So I thought, well, raise a few quid for a, a good, important cause. Brilliant. Um, and just finally, absolutely finally, deep down, in truth, do you think there'll ever be a, a, a sort of serious movement to rejoin the European Union in your political life? Yes. Uh, my my heart immediately says yes to that. My head is tempered a little bit with, <laughs> you know, there, there has to be a degree of pragmatism about this but I I genuinely think that in our lifetimes I think the question will be asked again I think there is a a very important strategic question about how you build that campaign and if it goes too too soon too quick it will fail dramatically again and this has to be about the sort of moments that lead there and for me the the first moment is you know electing the right leader of the Labour Party, making sure the Labour Party doesn't lose its sense of pro-Europeanism. I fear we did do that the past few years. We've got to rediscover that. We've got to develop and articulate what that means from outside the European Union. But at some point, I think that question will be asked again. I think the country will... Elements of the country and parts of the population will look for a a progressive pro-European political party and if it's not the Labour Party it will be someone else What a fantastic note to end on Rory, thank you so much for coming in, this has been amazing Thank you There you go, Rory Palmer I can't believe I've known him 20 years maybe more, it's so cool to think back, you know I mean I wonder who else was in those rooms that's gone on to do wonderful things there have been other people there um, that have gone on perhaps to be in the shadow cabinet or wherever. You know, you never know exactly when you're at these events um, who else is there. But I really remember Rory from the very early on. And I think it's fair to say, and I'm sure you'll share this assessment, he has got a lot of road left to uh, to, to have, a, I'm sure, a, a glittering political career. Really, he's only really at the start, I think. Um, but what a brilliant perspective he brings to things and what a brilliant attitude. And... Uh, you can just tell, you can just tell how sad the whole thing is for someone uh, like Rory who wanted to stay in the EU, not just because he was there. I mean, if anything, that all sounded quite secondary. It was just uh, the sadness, the reality for, for those of us who voted Remain, or should I say for some of us who voted Remain, who have found that quite emotional. So, um, And those scarves, they're going to be collector's editions. They're the sort of, the try and get your hands on one. I don't know if he would give you one if you tweeted it. Or maybe you can buy one at auction, as he says, to to raise money for the Joe Cox Foundation. Um, But what a fantastic guest. And it's one of those... It was like having Greg on last week, where you go, oh, you don't have enough people who do politics in that way. Um, And uh, so I think, actually, as well as, as European level... Local politics is just a different world. So I shall endeavour to try and get more uh, local politicians on um, on the podcast in the future. Thanks, as always, for downloading this. If, please, you could share it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, wherever else you find your friends. 
in person just tell people about it and if you could leave a review um on itunes or wherever you listen to this it the one thing it really helps is for other people to find it and it would be great if as many people as possible could listen to the show you can also email the show political party podcast at gmail.com as people do um so thank you all for all your uh, lovely uh, emails whether they're reflections on uh, previous guests whether they're suggestions for future guests or whether like toby who got in touch you found some nottingham forest programs in a charity shop in buxton and wondered whether i wanted them picking up i studied the photo he sent me in detail i think i've got all of the ones that he uh, he um he suggested I inherited a load when my granddad um, suddenly passed away. But if you see any political or football memorabilia you think I might like, um, then email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Um, and as always, uh, it's nice to know where, where people listen. Um, Thomas Ware dropped us a line and uh, said he uh, is listening to the show in my kitchen in Fullbourne in Cambridgeshire while cooking a lovely roast chicken. Oh, what a life, mate. That's what you want to hear about. I listen to podcasts while I cook as well, so that's very cool to know that other people do uh, while listening to this. So it doesn't have to be exotic. It doesn't have to... Well, but if it is, do let me know. Politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Tickets for Brexit Pursued by a Bear and the Political Party you can get through my website, mattford.com slash live. I'll see you next week. And as always, thank you for downloading. Ta-ra. Ta-ra.